I don't usually bring my coffee up here. I kind of need to wet my whistle this morning, so set that right there. Well, again, we're, we're so glad you're here, and, um, and there's quite a few folks that made their way in after announcements. So um, just welcome again to Downtown Presbyterian, to this time of worship. And if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. My name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Adam Radcliffe leading us in worship. And uh, Patrick Fant, one of our ruling elders, just prayed for us. Uh, if, if you are visiting, we are picking up where we left off as far as the sermon. We've been studying through the gospel, this part of the gospel of John this summer. And so we're going to pick back up John chapter 16, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. But we'll start in John chapter 16, verse 7. I heard a story a while back about a guy from the States, and he was visiting India and he was uh, spending time with one of the locals there that spoke English. And, and um, this, this man, I don't know what city this was, but he took him to a cemetery and uh, went to the grave of a, of a you know, family member, loved one that had departed. And he put fruit and food at this grave. And uh, the, the American had never seen this before. And he said, in your culture, when do you believe that the dead, you know, avail themselves of this food. And I guess the man was kind of indignant. He said, I think it's around the same time that yours smell the flowers. And that's one of those stories that when I heard that, and, and you'll hear stories like this where you'll feel like the way we do things is normal, and that's kind of the, the normal way to do things. And you're, you're struck by, from another point of view, we do weird things. It's not that we're normal and they're weird. We do weird things that don't feel weird to us anymore. I, I, I think it's especially important in a gathering like this, and it's especially important if you have been doing this for a while. Now, that's not everybody in the room, but for many of you, you you've been, if not here, somewhere else, you've been coming to worship on Sundays for years, for some of you, for decades. And so you're, you're accustomed to this. This feels normal and familiar. But think about somebody just coming in here with almost no knowledge of Christianity, watching us do what we do. And let's say that they, let's say they at least know this much. They know that, all right, Christians believe that Jesus is God and man, and they don't just follow his teaching. They actually worship him, so they, you know, sing songs to him, and they obey him, and they give to him, and they follow him, so everything is... They, they really worship him as their God. So they come in and they, they just observe us in this, a gathering like this. And they see us opening this book, or at least a, you know, a bulletin with words from this book. And they find out that Jesus didn't write any books. So we're opening this book and we're, we're you know, taking these citations of, of uh, writings from other men. And we're treating those words as if Jesus actually said them as if God actually said them, and like building our lives around them, and saying that they're utterly authoritative over every other authority in our lives. Now, if you know the Christian kind of, you know, standard answer to that, the, the standard answer is, well, Jesus set apart these men called apostles, and he gave them authority to do things that other people can't do. And one of those things was he let certain ones of them write things down so that when they wrote it. It's like he said it. But, like, where did we get that from? 
And, you know, people have asked that through the centuries. Is that just something the church made up? Uh, did the church just kind of arbitrarily say, well, look, here's these different options. It's kind of a Dan Brown kind of deal. You know, like, here's these, here's these options of books that could be in the Bible. These kind of serve our purposes. These don't really serve our purposes so well. So since this fits the agenda, we'll put this in the canon, in the, in the collection that we call the Bible, and we'll go with that. Is there some place where Jesus actually indicated, I'm going to give things to you, you're going to be entrusted with these things that are going to benefit the whole church. This passage is incredibly important for that question. And it's not spelled out like a theological statement about, uh, about how the Bible was formed. But what I, want you to hear, what I want you to hear in this is Jesus telling the apostles who he's sending and what that person's going to do. Uh, several weeks ago, Jake Patton, our assistant pastor... He was preaching and he started off quoting a Carly Simon song, I think from the 70s, about, you know, you're so vain. You probably thought this song was about you. And that, that one way that, that we can be very vain with the Bible is we come to every passage and we think that I'm the ultimate person this passage is about. And you've got to really watch that on this passage because it has huge relevance for us. I want to get to that eventually. But Jesus is sitting with, or standing with his disciples these 11 apostles, Judas Iscariot, gone. And he's saying things particular to them that are going to be relevant for us, okay? John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for what we have here right now as we're together. Thank you for these words. We come as needy people. There are no words like these words. They're sweeter than honey, honey from the comb, but it may be that we just don't experience that right now, or we can't feel that. We don't believe that. So show us the power of your word. In doing so, show us your power. In doing so, show us you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, almost 20 years ago, it's hard to believe, the movie Goodwill Hunting came out. Next year will be 20 years since that movie came out. Goodwill Hunting. 
and a very significant role for Matt Damon's career. And uh, I don't normally quote from R-rated movies from the pulpit, but just, you know, give me a pass on this one. Nothing, nothing um, untoward that I'm going to quote, but there, there's a, uh, the basic plot line is you've got this really brilliant guy, kind of a blue-collar guy, doesn't come from means, named Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon. And uh, he's gotten into trouble with the law. And part of his way of staying out of prison is that he's working with this mathematician, mathematics professor, and he's also meeting with a therapist played by Robin Williams, who won the Academy Award for that, for that role. And uh, he has a brilliant mind. And it's set in Boston, so everybody has a Boston accent in this movie. And like one, one of Will's friends said, yeah, my boy's wicked smart. Just brilliant, brilliant mind, gets mathematics, retains everything he reads, photographic memory, all that, but very troubled. So he starts meeting with Robin Williams, gets off to a very rocky start, and um, Robin Williams is this therapist, just really kind of navigates this process, and it reaches this pivotal scene, it's a famous scene in the movie where uh, Williams' character is holding this file, and it's, it's Will's file, it's, it's got, you know, just things he's done wrong in the past and how the treatment is going, but there are photographs in there that show that he's been physically abused, he's been abused in his family, and so they broach that subject. And Will asks his, his, his therapist, he says, you, you know anything about that? And uh, William says, that, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And they start talking about, it's very empathetically, what it's like to grow up with that. And uh, so finally, William's character, he, he gets up. It's a small office. They're just in his little, you know, campus office. He, he walks over to Will and he's, just, he's uncomfortably close. He says, well, do you know what this file means? At the end of the day, you know what this file means? It means it's not your fault. And, uh, and Will kind of nods, and, and Williams comes closer, and he says, no, it's not your fault. And Will goes quiet, and he comes closer. He's already close. He says, it's not your fault. And Will becomes angry and defensive, curses at him, tries to deflect it. And Williams comes closer and says, it's not your fault. And Will Hunting breaks down weeping. And I mean, Matt Damon, when he played this, he didn't cry. He wept like a break your heart scene because he got in. No one had ever gotten in. Tough guy, brilliant guy, a smart, smart aleck guy. And he got in. It just broke him. And it's a turning point. And I thought about that scene and thought about the way Jesus talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. Because in a way it's not like that. And in a way it's very much like that. Here's how it's not like that. The Holy Spirit comes to us with a file. And when I say a file, I don't mean all the bad things that have happened to us. I don't mean all the sicknesses or family things that we couldn't control or setbacks in our lives, bodily problems. I don't mean that. But I mean, it's the file of all the ways that we have failed God and failed each other. I mean, think about this, like all the ways 
that we have these standards that we hold everybody to and we wield that standard at everybody else to get irritated and hacked off at them and then we don't live up to it. It's all in this file. The Holy Spirit comes to us and says, way too close for comfort. It is your fault. But then he says this. I'm going to... I'm going to show you a man with no fault. And I'm going to show you what he does for all your fault if you'll turn to him. Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he comes so close that it, it is fight or flight close. He goes where no one else can go. And if you haven't been around as we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, he's not an it. And this is evident from Jesus' language. He is a he. He's a thir- the third person of the Trinity. He says, look, here's the bad news. And then here's the good news. So that's how I want to look at this passage. Um, we've already heard Jesus call him the helper. It's a, it's a translation of a Greek word that's really hard to translate. It, it just gets at... He comes alongside you and does things that we can't do for ourselves. Where we don't see truth, He shows truth. Where we lack strength, He pours in strength. Where we need courage, He gives courage. Where we need conviction, He gives conviction. We're going to talk about that. But Jesus calls Him the Spirit of truth. He's not an abstraction like truth with a capital T. He's a personal spirit, but He's the Spirit of truth. So let's look at it this way. The truth about the bad news and the truth about the good news. All right? The truth about the bad news and the truth about the good news. Now, what about the bad news? Look at verse 8. It says, when he comes. Now, he's already been talking about this in this portion of John. That I'm about to go away. I, Jesus, am going away. But I'm going to send you the helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He will come to you. So we've already heard this. Verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world. That verb is another word that's hard to translate. When you look at how it's used in the Bible, we don't just have a handy English word that matches it exactly. It means reprove. It means expose. It means convict. But when you look at the big picture of how this word is used in the Bible, it seems to have this overall theme, is that God, through whatever means, He takes something that we are keeping in the dark about ourselves. I mean, we we, we can keep it in the dark by just like trying to keep it on our insides where no one can see it if it doesn't come out. Or it can be that when it does come out, it's in the darkness. That could be literal darkness. It's done behind closed doors, in the dark, in the night. Or just figurative darkness, where it's just concealed by the way we manage everybody. But God comes, and He takes this fallen thing about us out of darkness and brings it into the light where it is seen and exposed. Seen for what it is, and we feel the weight of it. I'll come to that in a second. So He says, all right, the Spirit that I'm sending is going to convict the world about these particular things. And he says three, about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now let's just look at those the way Jesus said them, all right? 
The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world first about sin, verse 9. Concerning sin, because they, the world, do not believe in me. The work of the Spirit, when He comes, when I send Him, is He's going to convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. This weekend, we're going to offer our foundations class. Our foundations class is uh, uh, Downtown Prez 101. If you want to find out more about it, you can take it, kick the tires, walk away, whatever. But uh, people who are going to join the church, we require them to take that class so they have an idea of who we are. And if somebody takes the class and then wants to join, they meet with an elder. And it's not a theological exam if you do this, but it's to talk about, well, what do you believe? You know, how'd you come here? But what do you believe? about Jesus and all the rest. And, you know, I might not should tell you this ahead of time, but I'm going to tell you the, about the one sentence you can say that will keep you from being allowed to join our church. Now, besides the obvious ones, I mean, if you said like, you know, well, I, I worship Satan, that, that's, a, that's a no-go, all right? We, we, you know, we're friendly church, but can't do that. But if you say that you're good, we can't let you in. I've never had the, the Satan sentence said, but I, I've had the other one. Because the reality is, you cannot really, like the way John's gospel uses the term believe, you cannot really believe in a Savior until you actually believe <clears throat> that you need saving. You cannot, <clears throat> excuse me, really believe in a Savior until you really believe that you need to be saved. The verb believe and the noun faith all over the Gospel of John. John tells you at the end of the Gospel, he wrote this thing with an agenda. He lays his cards on the table. I wrote this so that you will believe. We can't make anybody believe. You can't make me believe. I can't make you believe. The apostles could not go out into the world and make anybody believe. So is this a hopeless deal? No, it's not hopeless because Jesus says to the apostles, he's going to send these apostles all over the world. They're just living their little Judean life. And he's going to send them all, he's going to send them further from home than they've ever been. And there's no reason that people would believe in a Savior except that the Spirit is going to expose, bring out, convict the world because they don't believe in me. They don't believe in me because they don't believe they need saving. So the Spirit's going to work, all right? He's going to, verse 9, excuse me, verse 10, He's going to convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Now, this one, I think, is really hard to understand. Because Jesus just said, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world about its sin, that it doesn't want brought out into the light. So, all right, we, we heard that. And then he says, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world about righteousness. It's going to bring out righteousness and let it be exposed. What righteousness if we just got through saying the Holy Spirit convicts of sin? I had uh, my eighth grade homeroom teacher was named Mrs. Gillespie. And Mrs. Gillespie was famous for saying to uh, eighth grade boys like me, gentlemen, and I use that term loosely. That was, that was a Gillespieism, you know. Gentlemen, and I use that term loosely. 
when she said, and I use that term loosely, that was her way of letting you know, unnuanced eighth graders know, I'm kind of putting air quotation marks around gentlemen right now because you're so not acting like gentlemen that I'm going to, you know, use that word and let you feel this doesn't match reality at all. That in some ways is how Jesus in the Gospels uses the word righteousness. People's righteousness. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to us, I mean, at least if you've been around the Bible and the Gospels, you can kind of see that one coming like, oh, okay, yeah, the Pharisees, they're always in trouble. They're always on the wrong side of, you know, comparison with Jesus. That's not what their peers thought. That's not what the people who surrounded them thought. They thought these are the guys that are sold out for God. These are the people that really take the Bible seriously. You know, moms told their kids, be like the Pharisees. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs. So he's saying, in some way, they do have a righteousness. Oh, do they? They're very proud of it. Protective of it. In a way, when he uses that language of their righteousness, he's kind of putting the quotation marks around it to say, unless you have something that when you stand before God surpasses that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, now take that and come back to the passage and think about what it's saying. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to convict the world concerning righteousness because I've been doing that not just through my teaching, but through my life. And you think about the life of Jesus. Like, Jesus wasn't killed because he was loving. Jesus was killed because he was so holy, it exposed everybody around him. So, like, if you were somebody that just had strict, strident uh, standards about the Sabbath day, just, just kept it to the letter, totally letter of the law person, all right, the people around you would think, oh, man, that guy, he, he is so devout. He's amazing. He takes this seriously. Jesus was around a group of people like that on one occasion, and they would get mad when he would heal on the Sabbath. And on one occasion, there's a man who needs healing, and he asked a group of people with that kind of view of the Sabbath, you know, if one of your animals, like a mule, some beast of burden, if one of your animals was stuck somewhere, trap, ditch, mud, whatever, wouldn't you rescue it, your animal, on the Sabbath if that happened? This man has been racked with pain and is trapped by physical suffering and weakness. Shouldn't we rescue him on the Sabbath? And of course, it just exposed them. It exposed their righteousness. And Jesus says this, guys, back to the room. I'm about to go back to the Father. I'm not physically going to be walking around doing that anymore. So then, who is going to expose the righteousness of the world? The Holy Spirit. And this is so brilliant because Christ is saying, when I send the Spirit, not only is He going to bring out the yuck about us into the light, the stuff that we know is bad, He's going to bring out the things that we are so proud of about ourselves. You know, I'm a nice person. Great. Why? 
Is being nice your way of feeling better than the not nice people? Is being, is being nice a way to be patronizing toward the people who aren't as nice as you? Because God says, I hate haughty eyes. Like God hates when we look down at anybody. That the Spirit is going to come to the world and He's going to even bring out the stuff that we are so proud of about ourselves and expose it. Convict it. Reprove it. And then the third one, verse, uh, verse 11. The Spirit's going to do that concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Who's the ruler of this world? Is that Caesar? That's the way Jesus would refer to the devil, to Satan. And I always try to be clear about this. Jesus' view of Satan, the devil is not that he's like the personification of evil or some mythic figure in the Jewish tradition. It's that he's an actual existent being with the capability to think and feel and act. He's, he is a personal being, the ruler of this world. Jesus says this, and if you want more comment on this, read John chapter 8 when he gets into an exchange with a Jewish audience, that when we do what comes naturally... And what comes naturally to us is to think self first. And this is interesting because if I, if I was to say, what to you would it look like for us to be satanic? You know, we'd probably think of like just somebody in just, I don't know, like all black leather chaps on a Harley and they're just like firing off machine guns or whatever. Hate kids. It, no, what, well, that would be it maybe. But I, to really be satanic is just always, every time, default mode, go self first. That's satanic. And it can feel so natural. It can feel so normal. It can feel like, like, actually, it can feel like I'm just doing what I was told to do. You know, look out for yourself. Self-care before the care of others. When we do that, the trajectory of our life is following someone who's already condemned. Jesus says the ruler of this world already judged already condemned. Hasn't happened yet, but, but he is just, he is poised for the slaughter. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world that I'm doing things that up till this moment just seem normal, natural. Everybody's doing this. And my eyes have been open to the fact that I'm going down a trajectory that goes toward judgment. We cannot see that about ourselves until the Spirit of God opens us up and lets it come out. Now, that's a lot of bad news. That is a lot of bad news. That is uncomfortably close and powerful. So what about the good news? And how is the Holy Spirit going to do all this stuff? Look in verses 13 to 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He'll take what's mine and declare it to you. And again, think first when He says you, 11 apostles. Verse 15, all that the Father has 
is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A couple of things here about what Jesus just said about the Spirit. Number one, the ministry of the Spirit is not to highlight the ministry of the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is not primarily to show you the Holy Spirit. And that's worth thinking about. If, if a teacher, if a preacher, if a church, if a ministry, if an author, if a podcast, whatever, emphasizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit over and above the ministry of Je- uh, the person and work of Jesus himself, be suspicious. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself. Then what is it? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to show Jesus to you. Verse 14. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and give it to you. The ministry of the Spirit is to introduce you to Jesus. And if you enter into relationship with Jesus, then for the rest of your life, to give you more Jesus. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we said, all right, Jesus is with his 11 apostles. He's saying these things. Okay, so how does this connect to us? A few weeks ago, we looked in the chapter before this at Jesus saying, I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you're not connected to me, you're going to wither and die. You're fit for the burning. You're not going to bear fruit, that's for sure. If you're connected to me, it says you bear much fruit. That's kind of the biblical way of saying you can experience change and meaningful impact. You bear much fruit. If you're connected to me, you'll see God answer prayers in ways you couldn't have dreamed. If you're connected to me, your joy will be full. In other words, to be connected to Jesus brings the things that we say we want. At least a big critical mass in this room would say they want. If you're connected to me, we need Jesus and we need more and more of Jesus Christ. How do we experience that? And here's the thing. We need worship. We need this. We need each other. We need prayer. It's all part of the big picture. But we need the ministry of the apostles. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying. If, if you heard me just saying the apostles are on an equal footing with Jesus, that's not what I'm saying. They were sinners who needed Jesus. They're not on an equal footing with him. But we're about to say the Nicene Creed, this ancient Christian statement of belief. And when it talks about the church, almost at the end, it says that I believe in the holy, Catholic, and something church. Apostolic church. Does that mean we're the church of the people who worship the apostles? No. What does it mean? It means that our church primarily built on the cornerstone of Jesus himself. But it's this temple built on the foundation of the prophets 
and the apostles. And the way the apostles had such a distinct role is they point you back. They point us back to the finished work of Jesus Christ and what is to come through him. You cannot get more of Jesus and neglect the apostles, which practically speaking means this. You can't get more Jesus if we persist in neglecting the New Testament. Jesus wrote no books. But he gives to men not only the task to spread out all over the world, preach this gospel, preach what the Spirit gives you, start new churches with what the Spirit gives you, but for some of them to write these things down or else to get other people to help write things down. The gospel of Mark, Mark was not an apostle, but guess who he was in relationship with and influenced by? Peter. Luke was not an apostle, but guess he, was, who's, um, he had a relationship with and who he wrote with? Paul. That Jesus gives from the Father, from himself, the Spirit, who takes what is the Father and the Son's and gives it to the apostles to make available to the church. The New Testament is what we need. Let me ask you this question. I'm not looking for a show of hands, and I'm not setting us up to be scolded. Have you ever read the whole New Testament? And that's not a who cares about the Old Testament question. That's, that, that's, that's a different sermon. This sermon, have you read the whole New Testament? Have, have you, and, and look, life doesn't get any simpler. We have to scrape and fight for quiet, for pausing, for reflection, for stopping, for reading, for marinating in something called meditating. Have you figured out some way to marinate in the words of the New Testament, and in particular, in the Gospels. We cannot thrive without doing that. Jesus gives to these men the Spirit so that they give to us just what we need as the church. These words are powerful. It'd be one thing if we didn't have this track record, but we've got almost two millennia of people coming to these words. Sometimes they don't own their Bible. Three-fourths of church history, no one owned a Bible unless you, unless you were extravagant, extravagantly wealthy. Maybe it was just a sentence you knew from worship. And that sentence has the power to go into hearts and expose and then bless and you think about like, there have been two millennia of people that approach the Bible feeling good about themselves. You're like, I'm a nice person. And I don't kill people. And I don't steal. And I do, I do pay my debts. I think this world would be better off if more people were like me. And then they read in the writings of the apostles or they hear teaching in the words of the apostles and they hear a sentence like, do not be wise in your own eyes. And we're cut. 
Because being wise in your own eyes, that category wasn't even on my radar. And as soon as I heard it, it exposed me. But then the work of the Spirit is to say this. Hey, look, that is your fault. You are wise in your own eyes. And you know what? I'm going to show you someone who took care of you being wise in your own eyes. Who takes away your guilt and gives you his righteousness. He was gentle and humble in heart, even though he had all wisdom. It's good news. All of us need that. Now, I want to end with a story that is kind of a one-of-a-kind story, at least as far as ones I've heard, but I think it drives home the power of the apostolic word. Um, in the 1850s, India was still a... Uh, it's a colony or an outpost of, of uh, Great Britain. And there are these massive mutinies and uprisings in the 1850s in India. And Parliament called a day of prayer and fasting about these, about these uprisings. And so in London, because there was such a mass population and you had a lot of people who didn't have a church home, they decided to set apart a place in London and provide a preacher that if you wanted to come to this worship service on this day of fasting and prayer, you could do it. So this place that was what we would call a convention center, uh, 23,000 people would gather that day, and they hired this young 20-something preacher named Charles Spurgeon to preach. So the day before this went out, uh, happened, he went into this building. 20, that's like a, a Bon Secours wellness arena and a half without a mic, no sound system. So he walked up onto the platform they're still setting up chairs, still setting up scaffolding to do what we would call a sound check. And so he just stood on the platform and all he said was, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the gospel. Of, that's John the Apostle quoting John the Baptist in the gospel of John. That's all he said. And a man found him a few days later that was one of the people setting up chairs and said, I was converted when you said that. All he said was a sentence from the Gospel of John, and this man is like setting up chairs or working on something, and he hears, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the Holy Spirit begins to work in him to say, Have your sins been taken away? You need your sins taken away by the Lamb of God. That power is there for us too. Let's open ourselves to it. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for loving the world so much that you sent your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending with your Father the Spirit, not only to us but to the apostles. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading them, guiding them, sinners though they were. Not only planting churches all over the world, but writing down just what you wanted us to know. Guiding them into all truth. Reminding them what they needed to remember. Thank you, Lord God, for the Old Testament and the New Testament. If we don't know what to do with it, would you... Still, our hearts enable us to come to you, open your word. Spirit, would you use it in our lives? Would you show us the bad news?
And then would you show us this beautiful good news? In Jesus' name, amen.